Well, good morning. So glad to be with you guys here today. When I was uh, from third to seventh grade, um, I was homeschooled, and I think this happened seventh grade, the last year. And I had a really good friend of mine. We would do, you know, every once in a while we'd have like these co-ops where you like meet with other people and they teach you math and science, all that sort of thing. And so uh, one of my really good friends uh, was also homeschooled at this time, and he got me in trouble a lot. Now, when I was a kid, I was pretty strong-willed, and so I bossed around most of my friends, but I had two friends in particular who had even a stronger personality than I did, and so when I was with them, they kind of got to do the bossing around. Uh, this uh, friend of mine uh, got me in trouble often. We, his, uh, my mom was on staff of the church I grew up in. His dad was on staff of the church. We yeah, this, the same church, and so we were with each other a lot, and so this particular uh, moment in time, we were done with uh, the class or whatever. We were meeting at this church, and at the, in the back of this church, they had all these trailers, you know, like schools have trailers, that sort of thing. And so I don't know why we thought this was a good idea. I'll blame him because he's not here to say otherwise. But we went into, there was like five of them. And so we went into four of them that were unlocked and turned the heat all the way up to like 95, like these little manual ones. I don't know why we did that. Uh, the fifth one we could not get into. And so we got a bunch of like rocks and sticks to try to unlock it. And we like broke the stuff in there. And I think they had to pay to get the, like the locksmith to come out to unlock it because they couldn't get in. Um, but after that, again, I don't know why we were thinking this. There was, a, there, was, it was, there was a bunch of trees all around the property. And then kind of near this church, there was a really, really large Catholic church. And so we decided to go through the woods and go explore this Catholic church. Again, we were gone for maybe an hour or two. I don't know why we didn't think, hey, they're probably wondering where we are. And so we're walking around. He goes into like the sanctuary, but I didn't. And I was kind of like watching guard, waiting for him to come out, making sure we weren't going to get in trouble. Eventually, we decide to walk back to where everyone is. I don't know. I don't remember if the police were there yet or not, but like parents were searching in the forest. They were calling out for us. We were in so much trouble. Um, in fact, I just got finished being grounded yesterday, so I'm really <laughs> excited about this. Um, but to make it worse, because we got in trouble often, my parents basically said, if you get in trouble with him again, you're not allowed to hang out with him, which is awkward because we were with him all the time. And so clearly, all that to say, I broke the rules. I was a pretty good kid in terms of, I didn't do a lot of crazy stuff, but I tried to push the boundaries uh, a time or two. And so I broke the rules. I got in trouble. And uh, speaking of rules, we're going to be talking about rules today as we continue in the book of Exodus. Although I think my, my goal is over the next few minutes is to uh, get you and I to view uh, God's laws maybe differently than how we often assume, because how we often view them is actually differently than and how we're supposed to understand them. And so if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus. We picked it back up last week after we took a small break. Uh, this is the story of Israel uh, being uh, rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Um, last week, if you were here, we see Moses and the Israelites uh, uh, coming towards the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Uh, Moses is kind of judging all over all these civil disputes, and Moses' father-in-law is like, this is way too much for you. You need to have help. And so he kind of sets up different people to be in charge of different groupings of people to help make sure everybody is, you know, treating each other well. And then we get to the Ten Commandments and the law. And so in the arc of the story, we've seen that Israel's redeemed. They're trying to figure out how to live as a saved and a new nation and a people of following God. And so now he's going to present to them and show them what it actually looks like uh, to love him and to honor him and to love those around him. And so we're going to be picking up the story in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Uh, God says this to uh, Moses, who's kind of at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai. He's probably not quite right next to camp, but everyone can kind of see him in the distance that there's something going on here. And here's what it says. It says, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the place of slavery. And so remember, he's reminding them something before he gives them a law again, uh, that the laws, and it's important for us to remember this, that they're not given in the abstract. So, so often we can go to the scripture and go to the Old Testament and read the Ten Commandments or read various laws and kind of pull them or look at them in ways that they're not supposed to be understood. They weren't just given out of the sky. They were given to a specific group of people in a specific context and also at a specific timeline. Israel had been redeemed and they had no idea how to live as a nation. And so now God is going to show them what this would look like. In other words, what we need to understand as we begin to look at the law is that God's law is for the redeemed. God's laws here are not for everybody necessarily else to kind of follow them. Now, of course, a good argument could be made that there is ethics and there is morals and there is virtues that we can take from this. That would be wise for everybody to live by. And so I'm not denigrating that at all, but we have to understand the context in which they were given. They're not like a, here's how we sometimes view them, put it this way. We sometimes view God's laws and commands as like an entrance exam, right? You got to live up to these certain things. And if you do it, then God will love you, right? And so we kind of tell people, we can judge people who don't yet know Jesus and say, well, how dare you do these certain things? You better act up before God will love you. Uh, We can forget that God redeemed them before he saved them uh, or he saved them before he gave the law. So who isn't like when they were in Egypt, let me tell you a few things you got to do. And if you do it well, then I'll save you, right? They're not an entrance exam. They're for people who have already passed the test because they've been redeemed by God. It's not the perfect analogy, but you could kind of think of it like this way. Like, remember senioritis, right? And you're as a senior in high school, maybe if you're a senior in college and you've already gotten a job, although in this market, that's probably not true for you. So just think about in high school, right? When, when like the grades are like the last half of the semester, you already know if you're going to college or what you're going to do. And so like, it really doesn't matter. And so what do you do in that case? Like you stop caring unless... Two things, unless you have a subject you actually care about, or maybe a teacher who you really like, who's passionate about what they're teaching, and so it makes you want to learn. You see, in that case, you do the assignments, and you study, and you read, not because you're trying to get a grade, but because you actually care about what's happening. And that is how we are supposed to see these commandments. They're not something you do for God to love you so you can check off a list. They're supposed to be, hey, we're already redeemed, we're already saved, we're already loved by God, and so let's follow him and honor him so we can experience more of who he is. That's the point of them. And so as we begin to go back into this book of Exodus and look at these commands, I want to mention two things as we go back to verse 3, which we'll read in a second. Uh, There's kind of two primary uses of the law Uh, in the Old Testament. One, you can kind of think of it like an MRI that exposes where you're sick or where you're broken and where you need help, right? It shows us where we fall short. And I think we kind of are used to or, or understand looking at it that way. But we also need to understand the second way to understand the law is that it's like a path of life that shows us what is pleasing to God and what is good for us, right? It's a path of life, which I think is different than how we typically look at it. Now, you can kind of think of the analogy like this. Again, this is not a perfect analogy, and let me preface that I'm not comparing these two documents at all. Uh, I'm just giving this as a cultural reference to us, right? You can think of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, and then you have all the various laws that follow after it, kind of like the U.S. Constitution. Now, again, I'm not saying they're both divinely inspired, and I'm going to be clear, God loves Americans the same that he loves Koreans or Russians or Nigerians or Germans. Like, nobody's more special than anybody else. So this is not a comparison at all. It's just for us to understand the context here. Like, if you look at the U.S. Constitution, right, you have that, and then you have all of the various hundreds or maybe now thousands of federal laws that are drawn from that, that are trying to interpret that for our particular moment in time and our context and our people. And so the 
the Ten Commandments kind of function like that. They kind of show us here's how the laws can be summed up, and then the laws that follow are kind of be teasing this out, what this would look like for the Israelites to actually obey and to follow them. And so that being said, verse 3, we're going to see the Ten Commandments today, and here's what it says. It starts by saying this. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And so God begins here by declaring that he is their God and that they are, and by following his commands, Israel will demonstrate God's power and light to the world. And so he says, do not worship any other gods and do not even try to create any other gods. Why? Because nothing you and I can create can come anywhere close to encapsulating the glory of God. It will always be a lesser version of who he is. And so he tells us not to create images. As a side note, we won't get into it this morning. Uh, part of the reason he also tells us not to create images is not just because we can't create anything that's anywhere near his glory, but because God has already created images. He's already created idols, and that's us. In the Old Testament, when it talks about humans being created in the image of God, it's talking about us being created as like little idols, a little people that are supposed to demonstrate God's glory to the earth. Nothing we can create can compare to him, and he already has created beings that are supposed to reflect who he is. And so he says, no other gods, do not try to create them, and do not try to worship anybody else. Now, we understand that, I think that makes sense, but then we read verse 5 and 6, and it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, right? It says, I'm a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, this is interesting for us because it's like, this isn't fair that somebody can do something wrong and then their great-grandchild is still suffering the effects of that sin. The question is, what is happening here? Um, it's good news for us to understand that that's not actually what it is saying here. Uh, when the, in, the Hebrew, or in the Hebrew, when it talks about the third and fourth generations, that was actually a Hebrew idiom that means however long it takes. And so you'll see this in other parts of the Old Testament as well. What, what the commandments are essentially saying here is that those who continue to reject God and go their own way, just like their fathers will, will continue to experience the punishment or displacement of God's grace in their life. And so it's not saying if you do something wrong, your great-grandchild is going to suffer the punishment. What it is saying is that if your child and your grandchild and your great-grandchild continue to act in the ways that you act, you will continue to experience the same things. And this is what we see throughout the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, right, every generation is going their own way, or the book of Chronicles, it's like they're messing up time and time and time again. What he's saying here is that those who reject me and go their own way will experience those effects until they turn back to me. And if you contrast that uh, with what it says at the beginning of verse 6, but he shows faithful love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commands, we see that God's desire at the end of the day is to love and to give grace and to give forgiveness. His desire is to bless forever. Right? You think of it this way, that God's love, in effect, is greater than his punishments, that he wants to, and we see this all throughout Scripture, anytime the people or a person turns back to God, no matter what they have done, they receive the grace and mercy of God. And this impacts how we view the law. 
In other words, you can understand and you can view the law this way, that God's laws are a blessing, not a burden. They're a blessing. Why? Because it shows us how we can actually experience God's grace in our life. And let me just ask it this way. Who doesn't want to be blessed by God? Right? Even if you're like not quite sure about this whole God thing or Jesus thing, like you're like, if God actually exists and if he could actually bless me, I would want to experience that. Like I think all of us would. But he actually wants to bless us. In other words, in the midst of difficulties and the hardships of life, he has a way for us to experience grace and forgiveness and community and love and support that we desperately need, which means that his laws are not a blessing. They're, actually, or they're not a curse. They're actually a blessing for us. In other words, we often view the laws incorrectly. Kind of think of it like this. Like, you know, when you were a kid, there were certain things that you thought, and then when you understood them better, which is what we're trying to do this morning, you changed your view on that subject, right? So, for example, when you were little, you might have uh, believed that the opposite sex had cooties, right? Do you remember this, right? You're like, don't touch me, right? got to get circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I got my cooties shot, right? You got like, to make sure that you were fine so that you could not get your cooties. But then what happened? You got a little older, and you started thinking, maybe this cootie thing ain't so bad, right? Maybe I, maybe I want a few cuties, right? That's, maybe that's not like that big a deal, right? And so, and so you change your mind on that. In fact, I remember when I was a little kid and I learned how babies were made. Um, I thought this is disgusting. That was my first thought. And my second thought is, God, why would you make it this way? Because who would want to do that? I was like, this is, this is gross. Like, why? And in fact, I have an older brother who's a little under two years older than me. And then I have a younger brother who's about five years uh, younger than me. And uh, when I was a little, when I was little and when I learned like this whole thing about how babies were made, and I remember my parents talking about how my younger brother was not planned, right? It wasn't like they didn't plan to do it. It just kind of happened. I remember thinking, you know, this is disgusting, who would want to do it? So my parents only did this baby-making process twice, and then somehow, some way, something happened where a third one was still created. Like, that's how I thought. Like, it was gross. And then I got older, right? And then when Christine and I got engaged, we were engaged for four months. Why? I was like, I ain't waiting a year. That's why we were engaged for four months. Highly recommended, okay? Now, what am I saying? God's laws are a blessing. Here's what I mean, right? We can view them wrongly. Like, they're actually a path of life for us. They're not meant to be avoided or meant to be like, oh, restricted. This isn't good. If God loves us and desires for us to be blessed and to experience his grace and forgiveness, it is a good thing that he is showing Israel what it looks like for them to experience that. They're a blessing, not a burden. And so we'll continue in verse 7. Here's what it says next. Uh, this is the third commandment. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, we'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but he's talking about here honoring God. Now, again, we can view this incorrectly because we can assume that he's only talking about our speech, that he's only saying, like, don't say a curse word with God in it or else you'll get in trouble. Um, that's not only the thing that's happening here, because here's what we know. We can misrepresent God in how we speak and how we live, right? You can think of it this way, like your family last name, right? You can say things, but you can also live in a way that can dishonor your family's name in word and deed. And so just because you might not be saying curse words with God in it, if you're a follower of Jesus and claim to follow him, and yet your life or my life completely shows evidences to the contrary, well, that is misusing God's name. So he's saying honor his name. In verse 8, he then says this, the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor for six days and do all your work, but on the seventh day, or, the, or you're to labor for six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
He must not, you must not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So what he's saying here is that the Sabbath day is meant to be a time of rest and worship for you to remember that you have been redeemed and loved and given grace and to trust in me that I will provide for you. Now, the seven-day work week was a pattern off the seven-day creation story. As a side note, I, probably, I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say it anyway, not to open up a can of worms. Uh, it's reflecting the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, which was a poetic narrative, which means uh, that faithful Christians can disagree about whether or not it's literally meant to be taken as seven days. Like the creation story is given in a seven-day story, but there can be faithful disagreement about whether it's actually saying it's seven days or not. Regardless, Israel's life is supposed to be a recreation of what of the failure that happened in the creation account. Right, Their work week was to, re to remind them to try to pursue God and do what Adam and Eve in the creation account failed to do. They chose their own way and their own desires, and they dishonored God. And so God is recreating a people in his image here to hopefully go forth and show the world who he is, which means for us, what we need to understand when it comes to the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is an invitation for recreation. It's an invitation for recreation. It encourages us to rest, to take a 24-hour time period to honor God and to rest and to trust in Him and to show that we actually are dependent on Him to provide and for Him to move and not just on ourselves and on our own work and on our own doing. And so their seven-day week was supposed to be an intention, intentional reminder for them to be a recreation to show the world God's desire and love for the world, and so it is for us, right? Taking 24 hours in our hectic, fast-paced 21st century Western society is hard. But doing that is good for your soul, it's good for your mind, and it, and it shows that we are trusting God to provide and not always working to our own ends. And so he says, take a day and rest and worship me. Now, the first four commandments are all about loving God, and then the last six commandments are going to be all about loving your neighbor. And so here's what they are. Verse 12, it says this. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, right? So honor your parents, respect them, uh, not just because it can literally keep you alive. So like little Johnny, who's three years old, should probably not run around next to the hippopotamuses or the alligators or whatever big scary animals they had near them, right? Because literally you won't survive if that happens. But also it's just good to take wisdom and uh, experience from your parents. So honor your parents. Uh, verse 13, uh, do not do not murder, right? And so do not go out of your way for no reason premeditated to end somebody else's life, right? That's a good thing. Don't do that. Uh, do not commit adultery, right? Don't cheat on your spouse. Honors, honor God and his design for sexual relationships. Verse 15, do not steal. Verse 16, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, right? So don't perjure yourself. Don't lie. Don't try to do things for dishonor, dishonest gain uh, to take advantage of your neighbor. Verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not cover your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So do not covet, do not be jealous of, or do not be envious of what they have and wish that you could have everything that they have. In other words, these guidelines here are for God's people to stand out, to love one another and to love God. And if they actually do this, 
This would be unique, not just for the world in our time today, but also in their time today. Because here's the thing, you could actually get away with a lot of these things a lot easier then than you could now. And so this really does take a lot of personal responsibility to live out these commands. Now, again, one of the things that we misunderstand when we read these laws is that we can think that they're only for me and God, like they're just vertical. They're just like every individual person, you do this. That is not how the commands were understood uh, for the Israelites, that they were meant to be lived out in community. In other words, it's not just about personal piety, but community of a community of people following God. That if a community of people are doing this, not just a few pockets of people, that's what actually makes the difference, that people can look at this nation and say that there is something different about them. I love what Peter N. says. It'll be on the screen. He's a biblical scholar talking about the Ten Commandments. He puts it this way. He says, as we have seen, there is a corporate dimension involved when God's people speak of the Ten Commandments. His law is to be followed, not so that individuals can show their worth before God, and certainly not so that they can either earn or secure their salvation, right, because they've already been redeemed, but so that God's people can show the world the kind of God they worship, that those who know God and experience Him live in such a way that honors Him and honors other people so that other people might be attracted to who this God actually is, In other words, as we look at the Ten Commandments and all the commandments over the next couple of weeks, we need to remember that God's laws are to be lived out in community. They are never just between the individual person and God. They are to be lived out in community. Now, again, as a side note here, they view the laws a little bit differently than we do. Uh, So I want to make this point because this will help us understand this better. Uh, Modern societies like America and a lot of Western cultures today view laws a little bit differently than ancient cultures. And so, again, we can misunderstand what's happening here. Typically, right, in American culture and a lot of other cultures, you have an exhaustive amount of laws, right, for like every possible thing that could go wrong or every possible thing that somebody could do, you try to create a law for it. And so this this is frustrating for us because... You know, you might have high-profile cases where somebody does something wrong, and you know that they're guilty, but there hasn't been a law written against the, te- the thing that they actually did. So technically, they got off, right? There's loopholes. There's things you could do that, although we know it's wrong, if there's not a law that has been explicitly mentioned against that action, you can get off and, and kind of technically not be guilty and not have to pay a punishment or, or pay the pr- price for that, for that crime. Now, this is not how the ancient world view the law. Uh, they viewed it as a paradigmatic way. In other words, they viewed it as examples. So they were examples for all possible situations. So, for example, as we'll see later on, if there's a, a law for a restitution for a stolen oxen or a so- stolen sheep, it would still apply if you stole a goat. Like, you wouldn't say, well, it doesn't say anything about goats, so I don't have to do anything. That's not, that's not how it worked, right? It was, it was an example of anything that could happen like this. Here is what you should do in those situations. In other words, it's not about getting out of it. It's not about trying to find ways to avoid having to honor the law. It's about doing everything you can to act honorably towards other people and to love God and understand him better. Uh, this is why and, and Jesus talks about how the great, the, summing up the commandments this way. So, uh, they're about loving God and loving people. They're not about trying to find our way out of it. They're trying to say, okay, this is generally what it means to love God. I'm going to apply this in any situation that I find myself in. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 22. It'll be on the screen. Matthew 22, verse 34, it says this. 
When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silent the Sadducees, they came together. So when one religious, Jewish religious grouping of leaders heard that Jesus had kind of rebutted another group, they came together because they wanted to stump him. It says this in verse 35. And one of them, an expert in the law. So this is someone who would have understood the Hebrew Bible, probably had most, if not all of it, actually memorized. They would have known all this stuff. They weren't, they weren't dumb by any stretch of the imagination. An expert in the law asked a question to test him. So to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Right? The assumption is if they're from God, they all matter. And so how are you going to choose which is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor and yourself as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these commands. Right? They're not about working our way out of to try to avoid them. They're about doing everything we can summed up about loving God and loving people. In other words, you can see it this way. That our law is to love God and love people. That is the point. The point is not to read these things and be like, well, I don't live in an agricultural society and I'm not selling, selling sheep and so maybe I can kind of do whatever I want. No, we're supposed to see and understand and try to apply the principles to our specific context to, to do what we can do to love God and love people in a paradigmatic way, right? As an example, not as a technical one, which means, for example, if you're in a situation and someone has said five bad things about you, right, it can be really easy for us to kind, to, uh, kind of justify, well, we can say one thing because they said a lot of bad things and so like it's not even and so I'm like it's not that bad but that's not what the law is pointing us to that no matter what happens at the end of the day to the best of our ability we are called to love God and love people period that's what he's calling us to and so we'll continue I want to read this last part that we'll read this morning uh, in verse chapter verse 18 through verse 21 after he's giving the 10 commandments right the kind of the the main thrust of the law uh, that that all the other smaller laws are going to be pointing to he then says this all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning and the sound of the ram's horn and the mountain was surrounded by smoke when the people saw it they trembled and stood at a distance you speak to us and we will listen they said to Moses but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. In other words, Moses now is going to go up to the mountain uh, to receive these 10 commandments in stone and various other laws that we'll look at next week. And so what's happening here is that the people are afraid, but they have a healthy fear that who they're following is powerful and mighty and just, and it's good for them to know what God wants for them, right? In other words, you can view the, the laws and the commands this way in Scripture, that God's laws are for God's people, for the good of the world. God's laws are for God's people, for the good of the world. Now, this is not, to, so for example, um, you know, there's lots of debates, and I get it, in, you know, in American culture about, like, keeping the Ten Commandments, you know, in the courthouses and in the schools and that sort of thing. And, and I understand the heart behind that, 
But scripturally speaking, that is not the point of the laws. They're not like a list of rules that everybody better follow so God can love them. Right? What are they? They are for the people of God who first have received the redemption and grace of God and actually have a desire to want to live them out. Now, again, of course, they have good principles and morality and ethics that would be good for all of us to follow. But when we get upset and we judge people who do not know Jesus because they're not following his commands, we are missing the point of the order of things. It's not that they do right and then we tell them that Jesus loves them. It's that we tell them that Jesus loves them so that they actually want to experience who he is. Or put another way, the law is to be kept by the right people for the right reasons. By the right people, God's people, for the right reasons. Why? To honor him and to love others. Not to show others how wrong they are and how much better we are and how how much of a failure we can be on our own. But to redeem us and to remind us of who he is, right? Just like, although our context is different, right? The Israelites were redeemed from from Egypt before God gives them the laws. Jesus has redeemed us before he asks us to follow them. The good news of the gospel is not that you did a good job that you followed his laws, and then he said, okay, you've done good enough that I'm going to save you the rest of the way. But the good news of the gospel is that you did not follow the Ten Commandments. The good news of the gospel is that you failed, and God says, I love you, and I redeemed you, and I want you to experience me. I want you to know me so that you'll then have the heart to actually want to honor me and love other people so that other people can experience who I am. God's laws are for God's people, for those of us today who follow Jesus, for the good of the world. When we focus on being a community that loves people well and that honors God well, people look at that and say, there's something different about that. There's something about how they treat me, how they treat others that I want to know more of. The good news of the gospel is not that you follow these commands and the commands that follow after them or else God will be upset with you. It's that God has already redeemed you, that he has already purchased you, that he has already given his life for you, and so that we follow these in response to who he is and what he has done for us. God's laws are for God's people, for the good of the world, for people to see, to taste, and experience the goodness of who he is. It's not about us measuring up and doing the right thing. It's simply about us being honest about our need for him, allowing God through his spirit to transform our life, and following his laws because they are a blessing for us, so that we can experience, that we can taste, and that we can see more of who he is. Not so we can check a list and say how awesome we are, how deserving of God's love we are, but so that we can experience his love that he's already given us to an even greater degree. God's laws are for God's people, for the good of the world. Let's pray.